It's been an amazing year for Python. We've seen its meteoric growth continue to become the most popular major programming language. We've seen significant grants and funding come in for open source. And this just might be the year that the Python 2 or Python 3 question was finally settled. Join Brian Aachen, my co-host from our Python Bytes podcast, and me as we look back at many of the major milestones for Python in 2017. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 145, recorded December 21st, 2017. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is sponsored by Linode and Rollbar. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Hey everyone, before we get to the interview, I want to share a quick update about our Python courses with you. Do you work on a software team that needs training and could really use a chance to level up their Python? Maybe your entire company is looking to become more proficient. We have special offers that make our courses here at TalkPython the best option for everyone you work with. Our courses don't require an ongoing subscription like so many corporate training options do. And they're roughly priced about the same as a book. We're here to help you succeed. Send us a note at sales at talkpython.fm to start a conversation. And here's a bit of a timely announcement. We're giving away a PyCon ticket to one lucky individual. So every year PyCon in the US sells out. If you don't have a ticket, go buy a ticket. Or, or you could become a friend of the show. Many of you already are, and thank you for that. If you're not, just go to talkpython.fm slash friends, enter your email address, and you'll be in the running on January 8th. We're going to do a draw using a little random dot choice and figure out who the lucky winner is who wins a free ticket to PyCon. So be sure to become a friend of the show if you want to be part of that. Now, let's get to the interview. Brian, welcome back to Talk Python. Thanks for having me back for this special episode. I always love these year in review shows, and it's really excellent that you could be here to do it together with me. So you were on previously a couple years ago to talk about the testing column, how the testing pyramid was broken and we need more testing column, right? I guess. I can't even remember what we talked about. So that makes sense. It's been a long time, but uh, I do remember the testing column is now a thing after that, that episode. That was cool. So people may know you from our work together on Python Bytes our other podcasts. They may know you from your test and code podcast, and they may know you from your book, right? Yeah, just so this last year got the book uh, Python Testing with PyTest with Pragmatic Publishers published this last year. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. That's definitely one of the things we'll review as as we go through here. So we're going to get together today and talk about what we think were the major accomplishments, major pieces of news, not necessarily the major projects, uh, say, in terms of like projects you find on, on GitHub or something, but more like the trends in Python in 2017. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Do you want to kick us off with what may be one of the biggest trends out there? Yeah, one of the biggest trends that we saw in 2017 is a dramatic shift from Python 2, or legacy Python, 
to Python 3, our modern Python. I love the term legacy Python and modern Python, or just Python and legacy Python. I think it's actually making a difference. And Matthias, who originally started that, that trend, well done, man. That is awesome. So I think this is finally the year where the question seems silly to ask. Like it, it's been a few years. We're like, yeah, you can do Python 3. You can do Python 2. You know, how is this progressing? It should really be going quicker. But to me, it feels like if somebody says, I'm going to start a new project with Python 2, you kind of smack them and go, what? What are you doing, man? Come on. Like, it seems like that's the feeling in the industry these days, which is really good, right? I definitely think so. And I think there's been a switch. Uh, hopefully, there's been a switch in uh, the education like in colleges and stuff, people using Python 3 instead. There's a couple of milestones around this that uh, we wanted to highlight, right? One of them is this article by ActiveState, the guys at ActiveState, called Python 3 versus Python 2. It's different this time. They really lay out some of the things, some of the facts around this. For example, 95% of the top 360, don't know why they chose that number, 360 packages listed on py3readiness.org, 95% of those are Python 3 ready. So traditionally, the blockage has been this sort of catch-22 around packages not supporting Python 3, right? Yeah. A couple of years ago, that was definitely the case of people trying to switch, and they found out they had some key package that hadn't been migrated yet. But um, for the most part, that's behind us. Yeah, absolutely. So Django, Django played a big role this year in, in sort of putting a nail in the Python 2 or legacy Python coffin, right? Right. I mean, even just this month, uh, Django 2.0 came out and it does not support Python 2. It's 3.4 and above. And with a little side note that 3.4 is only going to be supported for another year-ish. So move up to modern Python. Yeah, that's awesome. 3.5, I guess. But I think if you're going to move up, may as well just move up to 3.6. Right. Yeah. The only reason I think to not move to 3.6 is if you're working on like a Linux distribution and it doesn't support it or it's a complete yeah. pain to like a non-standard. But even so, 3.5 already has async and await. It has all, it has type hints. It has a lot of the magic features that you really care about, which is awesome. Yeah. So Django... The current shipping version of Django does not support legacy Python. That's awesome, right? Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that <laughs> Django, when it used to default to Python 2.7, I think that was part of what was keeping people behind. Yeah, even previous to this, I actually don't know the timing on when this happened. It was a little while ago. But they switched the default instructions from their tutorials or getting started tutorials from saying use Python 2 to saying use Python 3. And that made like a significant statistical differences in just the the consumption of Python 3 libraries on PyPI just from the documentation switch, which was pretty powerful. Let's talk about some of the, uh, there's a, a few other switches. Heroku switched their default to 3.6 recently. Yeah, that's awesome. It was like 2.7.13 or, or something. And so now if you go to Heroku and say, give me a Python app, you get Python 3 unless you say, no, no, I mean legacy Python, excuse me. NumPy has laid out their plans for dropping Python 2. Looks like tw you've got till 2020. Yeah, the NumPy folks, they're not moving super quick. But the fact that they say we are dropping Python 2 support should put it on the radar if everybody in the data science world, like, same thing, start moving, right? I think their motivation is very similar to the Django folks in that they've had extra work and extra burden. It's harder for people to come and contribute to the project because they have to contribute two versions sometimes, a Python 2 and a Python 3 version of everything. They're like, why Why do we have all this code? 
So they're like, not only do we think it's time to move, but we think we will have a better chance of adding new features and getting new contributors if we drop this Python 2 thing. So that's pretty cool. This was laid out at the uh, the last 2017 PyCon was a talk with Instagram switching to Python 3 and how they did it on one branch. And that was amazing. That was insane, right? But you're right. So I think I think that was a great talk and that it showed everybody else, man, if these guys can do it with a very complex code structure, you can too. My biggest takeaway from that was, oh my gosh, they did that on like the main branch. They made that change without branching and they got it working in production and everything, which is pretty awesome. And the whole way in which they did that was cool. But my main takeaway was, whoa, if they can do it, pretty much anyone can. Like there may be a few companies, like let's say Bank of America, they've got an enormous Python 2 code base. But unless you are like at that scale, right, this is sort of a case study in how you could make this happen for you. What's interesting is we started the year with uh, still talking about trying to get people to move on to Python 3. And at the end of the year, we're not really talking about that so much anymore. We're talking about some of the new exciting projects that are Python 3 only, like API Star and the uh, all the type hint libraries and stuff going on. That's really cool. API Star is by Tom Christie, same guy that did Django REST framework. He's like, I want to re-envision a REST framework, but with Python 3 features, really interesting use cases of things that are only available in Python 3. And then we have, you said, like, we've got... Pi annotate, MyPy, and monkey type, which are all around this type hinting, type annotation thing, and it's available only in Python 3. I started the year not thinking type hints were a good idea, but I think they are now. Everybody else has convinced me. I try to use them judiciously, but I do really like them. I think on this section, on this topic, our first one, this move to Python 3, we should leave people with the Python 3 death clock. Yes. Or the Python 2 death clock. <laughs> <laughs> what, pythonclock.org? Yeah, pythonclock.org. And so we have about two years, three months, and 14 days until Python 2 drops, even security fixes, all right? And so if you have a manager or your team's like, I don't know if we should really do this switch. We just stick with Python 2. We already all know it. Like, put this up on a big screen somewhere and just let it count down. <laughs> it's a little scary now. I think in, a, in about two years, it'll be real scary. A similar timer is shows up on some of the Python libraries, the documentation, like requests has that at the top, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so... Let's move on. Speaking of requests, you'll find requests on PyPI, right? Yeah, along with a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> a whole bunch of other things. What if you misspell requests? That would have been a problem for a while, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that happened this year was that hackers subverted PyPI and they got 10 malicious libraries installed. And the malicious code is not in the library itself. They literally took the open source code and just put it into their library. But when you pip install things, it has the setup.py that runs to configure everything. That can do anything. And so they put malicious code in there. It was a weird thing. It was almost, it was kind of bizarre. What surprised me is that they had it running so that the actual package, the real code was still running. It was just the setup was all messed up. That's right. So you would not be able to determine that you had installed one of these virus packages by it not working. Because it was literally the same code. Like you imported it, it ran. It just happened to be really, really bad. So the way they did this was by typo squatting, basically. If you type requests, but you misspelled it somehow, right? They might create a package that is this virus-injected version by 
copying requests and uploading it to PyPI under misspellings of these various things. Yeah, it's just wacky. But the community kind of got around this and it got it dealt with pretty quickly, which was pretty nice. The couple things they had, um, the new pip won't let you do uh, misspellings of some of the common packages. You're not allowed to create uh, standard library names, right? Like they used... Uh, URL lib or something like that. Like that was not actually a package, but you would reasonably import it. So you, you know, they could trick you into pip installing it. Anything that's been um, seen has been taken down. All of these malicious libraries are gone now. And then, well, hopefully. And then somebody went around and squatted on a whole bunch of names to make sure that it wasn't taken by somebody else. Yeah. So they're like, all right, we're going to just put a message or some sort of import or install warning here and just say like, no, you can't, you can't have these. There's also some, some utility that would generate variations or misspellings of your package. So you could squat on your own if you run a popular package as well, which is, which is pretty nice. So I don't know. On one hand, this is really disturbing. On the other, if you look at how many times those things were downloaded, they're in the, like the tens or hundreds, not millions. So that's one thing. One of the good things about this, I think, that came out is, um, I mean, some people's first reaction might be, why didn't the team that runs PyPI, why didn't they proactively fix this or get know about it? And it highlighted the fact that all these people are volunteers and uh, maybe we need to do something about that. Well, yeah, and PyPI itself is utterly critical for making the Python ecosystem work, right? Anytime you set up a new machine, you set up a new project, you do an automated build, there's probably some sort of pip install dash r requirements.txt process that happens, right? And that flows through PyPI. The amount of data that flows through there is super incredible. And it turns out that there's just a handful of people, as in one or two, who work on this at all. And like you said, they're volunteers. So one of the big pieces of the news is that Mozilla came along to fix this, right? Right. So the the next uh, thing we were going to talk about was the uh, huge grant, the huge, in open source terms, $170,000 grant from Mozilla to uh, help uh, with the sustainability of, sustainability of PyPI, which is just awesome. Yeah, that is really, really great. I'm so glad to hear that they're doing this. It's on one hand, it's not a huge amount of money, but it's it really does put like the foundation in place. A lot of this is going towards moving over to warehouse, I think. So that'll be good. I think that'll uh, help with a lot of uh, open, a lot more people being able to contribute to the the maintenance and update. That's really interesting. One of the problems with PyPI, the website, is that it's super old and crusty. It's not like Shiny Flask. It's not cool new Django 2.0. It's like hand-rolled, custom, couple of files, thousands of lines, funky code. And it's great that it works, but it really needs to be modernized. And so one of the things that this includes is moving over to what you already mentioned, Warehouse. Warehouse is the new implementation, what you'll find at pypi.org, not the pypi.python.org slash pypi, why that's there twice, who knows. But the new one, and that's actually written in Pyramid. It's well-factored code with unit tests. I think uh, that move is a great move, and I'm excited to put the old version behind us as soon as we can. It still works great, but um, I understand when people complain about having to maintain some legacy code that's crusty. Yeah, and the problem was people would want to come and submit a feature for it, and they would look at it and go, actually, 
no, this is a complete mess. I can't work on this. I'm out of here. And so we have this, this sort of dual problem. One, that there's people who are working on this critical thing only in this volunteer mode, more or less. And then there are people who want to contribute to it, but its current state repels them, <laughs> technically speaking. Exactly. So it's like a, makes it, it's like a double negative, right? Those, um, some of this funding to try to convert over, then maybe we can get swarms of open source people to help out. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So I'm looking forward to that little pre-release, pre-production warning at pypi.org to go away. Thanks for Mozilla helping on that. And just related really, really quickly, you talked about major open source projects getting funding. NumPy got a whopping grant for $645,000 to improve it over the next few years. That's awesome open source support right there. That's a lot of money, but that seems to, that's a drop in the bucket for the people that are uh, really leaning on data science a lot. Yeah, it definitely drives a lot. What I would just like to see is Django get that, Pyramid get that, Request get that. You know, other... Like so many of these popular open source packages that are these third party packages are so critical to so many companies making billions of dollars on it, they could throw in a little bit, a little bit of support, right? It does seem uh, interesting that, I mean, requests is used, for instance, as an example. There's so many like that, though, that are used by so many people that, um, and they still have, they still have to have day jobs. That's right. All right. So let's move on to something slightly political. But I don't want to. I don't want to make this overly politicized. But I think there is something we really should touch on a little bit here, and that is, I can see positive sides of the whole Democratic side of the U.S. government, the Republican arguments some of the times, but this anti-fact, anti-science, anti-climate science bent of the current administration. It's a real danger to like a lot of what we really need to focus on. I mean, climate change, in my opinion, is the biggest challenge we are facing currently as humans, period. And it's been in danger, right? It doesn't even matter what, what side of the fence you're on. Taking data down is a, like, data on climate change should be, it's just data. It's a, not something we should argue about. Right. Facts should be facts, period. You can argue about the interpretation, but facts are facts. And they're really important for us to make the right decisions. And so one of the huge challenges is there was a suspicion that when Donald Trump was going to become president, that many of these government-controlled, super important data sources were going to disappear, right? Like NOAA, the Oceanic Institute, EPA, National Renewable Energy Laboratory, all these different places, right? Theoretically, some of this data could be vanished, right? I don't know what the current state is, though, of some of that data, but some of it is, at the very least, harder to find. Yeah, and you ha you hear about things like there being forbidden words at the EPA, like you can't use the word climate change, for example. How scary is that? So there were these data activists who decided, we're going to save this, right? Yeah, so they like took went off, and it started like right at, what, right at January 20th, the inauguration, started copying as much data as possible and storing them in European servers. That's a pretty, I mean, it's a huge effort, but uh, that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, it is. So there were 60 scientists and programmers who gathered at the Department of Information Studies in UCLA. There was a bunch more in Toronto, Philadelphia, Chicago, all over the world. And I'm sure requests and beautiful soup and a lot of that was 
in full force going around just sucking all of this data off these websites. And you might say like, okay, these people are paranoid, whatever, right? But in fact, right at noon, the day Trump was sworn in, a lot of the climate change pages on whitehouse.gov just disappeared, right? So those were grabbed just in time, I think. That's just weird to take stuff down right away. Quite an interesting data hacktivist sort of story. I mean, they weren't actually hacking things, but they were definitely out there using code and probably a lot of Python to try to rescue the data, which is quite interesting. There are definitely probably people using Python, but also one of the things that I'm glad we highlighted the story is that there is not a, you can't separate your interaction with the governments and the world and the fact that you're a programmer. And in this story, we see that programmers are able to save things that politicians might want to get rid of. So it's good. It was really, really uh, heartened to see this. Quite an interesting story. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Linode. Are you looking for bulletproof hosting that's fast, simple, and incredibly affordable? Look past that bookstore and check out Linode at talkpython.fm slash Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E. Plans start at just $5 a month for a dedicated server with a gig of RAM. They have 10 data centers across the globe, so no matter where you are, there's a data center near you. Whether you want to run your Python web app, host a private Git server, or a file server, you'll get native SSDs on all machines, a newly upgraded 200 gigabit network, and 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a 7-day money-back guarantee. Want a dedicated server for free for the next four months? Use the coupon code PYTHON17 at talkpython.fm slash Linode. All right, so another thing that I feel like was really significant this year was the whole async and await, async IO thing in Python. We saw a lot of new frame web frameworks come in in 2017, or at least we heard about them. I don't know how many of them are production ready, but they're definitely on the way, which is pretty cool. One of the challenges for any of these web frameworks to be async enabled and you know maybe it's worth mentioning why that might be good right like if especially because you have the gill right it's it's hard to add parallelism to your python code in in simple ways but usually what do web servers do they call other web services microservice type things or external services like payment gateways they talk to databases and then they do a little bit of stuff. Maybe they talk to the file system and then they, they get back to you. But a lot of it is this kind of orchestration bit, really. And all of those can be pushed into the async IO loop, right? If you use like Postgres, there's an async version for Postgres, async library for consuming it. So you can await like a query, which is really awesome. But if your, frame, if your web framework doesn't support it, like Flask doesn't support it, Pyramid doesn't support it, Django doesn't support it, you can't use that. It's like it's useless. Right, you cannot use that in your website. So you really need a framework that will, all the way down through it, allow you to sort of release these awaitable coroutines. I'm probably talking through my hat on this one since you're more <laughs> of the web developer. But we did see three interesting ones come along, and probably more. Like I'm, I'm not giving it. I guess I should probably throw AIO HTTP in there as well. But the three that come to mind for me are Sanic, which is a new web framework entirely built on alternate implementation. I think UV loop is what Sanex based on. So you can go and write code against your web framework and use all of this async and wait stuff. There's Japronto, which is really interesting. And Japronto, I think, caused a lot of a lot of a stir because they originally published an announcement on Medium and they have like a really a pretty impressive 
graph right on their GitHub page saying, we're getting millions of requests per second on a single server. <laughs> they show it next to Go and Node, and it's like, I don't know, 20 times faster? I mean, it's a lot, lot faster than, than the other things. And so on one hand, they caused a big stir about people going, well, you're doing your, your benchmarking wrong for this reason or that reason or, or whatever. So Depronto is pretty interesting. This, the thing that's unfortunate is it's, it's kind of stalled out in the last 10 months. Like it came on really strong, and there's just not a lot happening in the commit history. Interesting. Yeah, but Sanic, on the other hand, it's going pretty strong. And a, a new one that we recently covered on Python Bytes is called Court. And Court takes the Flask API and makes it async and awaitable. So you could take the code that you know and make it work, basically in this async world that you want. This one does seem to be fairly active as well. I'm going to have the guy who's created it on the show, on this show, on Talk Python, in a few weeks as well. So we'll dig more into it. But basically, it's Python async IO web microframework with exactly the same API as Flask. But you can say your views can be async def method name, not just def method name, right? So it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah, hats off to him for coming up with just taking the Flask API and reusing that. Why, yeah. why come up with something new? <laughs> That's all right. That's smart. I also saw Armin Ronecker talking about this kind of stuff, who's behind Flask, talking about some of these ideas and stuff around Flask on Twitter. I don't know if there's anything officially happening directly in Flask, but I wouldn't be surprised. That'd be a good thing to throw money at. Hey, everybody throwing money at project projects. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Let's make our, instead of switching to Go or something, let's just make our web frameworks actually do what Python can do. One of the things that is at the core of all of our Python programs is CPython. And if people want to contribute to it, how and where that's happened has kind of been a journey, right? I didn't realize the, the history. I, I knew that in 2017 it moved over to GitHub, but it's it's moved around a little bit. <laughs> it has. It was somewhere where I actually don't even know really where it was pre-2006. In 2006, it was on Subversion. Then they moved it to Mercurial, Back then, Mercurial, Git, they were kind of vying for action. But, and you know, Mercurial makes a lot of sense. It's written in Python, so Python should be hosted on Python. It's kind of meta. But in 2017, it really is the modern workflow for social programming and open sources on GitHub these days. So the big news is Python, C Python code moved to GitHub. I'm not going to make a judgment call as to whether that's a, whether all of the activity on GitHub is a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. So you can't ignore that most open source developers are on using GitHub. So it makes sense to put that there too. Absolutely. It's like saying, I want to go and do stuff on social networks, but I don't want to be on Facebook. <laughs> it's right. like, well, <laughs> that's just the way a lot of it is. I'm sorry. Yeah. So this was actually done by, uh, sort of motivated by Brett Cannon a little bit. And he said one of his goals was he would like the ability to review an external contribution from submission to commit all on a tablet while at a beach on Wi-Fi. And he can do that with GitHub, and he couldn't do that with Mercurial and the other things. So that's pretty cool. It was also motivated by people submitting patches, but the whole flow of reviewing it, you know, there's not the pull request style and, and stuff there. So it's it just wasn't really, the request would set idle for like a year. You'd make some change to CPython and people wouldn't even like pay attention, right? No, that's terrible. That'll take away your motivation for sure, right? Yeah. <laughs> And whatever we can do to get Brett on a beach more often. Yeah, right? that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, so well done. Well done, everyone involved in that. Now, the next one I want to talk about has to do with Python becoming a very, very popular language. And this is not a an achievement per se of 2017, but this is where it certainly some, hit some milestones and the world has started to pay a lot of attention to it. The growth of Python, I mean, it's been growing fast for a long time, but having it overtake some of the other languages in certain surveys happened this year, which is great. One of the places I love to get this data from is Stack Overflow. And they have their yearly developer survey, but they also have on-staff data scientists that just analyze stuff and write reports about it, right? Which is pretty awesome. So one was called The Incredible Growth of Python. And they said June 2017 was the first month that Python was the most visited tag on Stack Overflow. Not JavaScript, not Ruby, not C Sharp, not Swift, Python, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's great. Hopefully that's not because it's the most confusing language. What I thought was really interesting is you can go read the article, The Incredible Growth of Python on Stack Overflow. And if you look at the comments, and comments at least at the time when it came out were turned on, so people were commenting at the bottom, it read a lot like, you know, people were sort of disappointed that their favorite language didn't make it. Well, Ruby's used so much in Silicon Valley. Why is Ruby not here? Or I don't, you know, I think Python must be so complicated. That's why it's so much, you know, it's, it's got so many visits, right? You should just use C++, something simple that doesn't need explaining. You know, and you're like, wait a minute. No, there's no way that C++ doesn't need more explaining than Python and its language syntax. And, you know, there's a lot of things that could contribute to this. I think partly PyPI might actually be part of it. Like if you want to talk about requests, that's got a Python tag. You want to talk about Django, that's got a Python tag. You want to talk about SQLchemy, that's got a Python tag, right? Like all these different things around Python that people use and love also contribute to this fact here. Yeah, and we're seeing so many different groups like uh, use Python that weren't before. There's a lot of people not using R anymore for data science and machine learning, switching to Python. We've got technical people, universities, a lot of people that used to use visual programming in the science science and engineering fields are using uh, free Python tools now. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, just great. Yeah, and so there's two graphs I want to call people's attention to. One is projections of future traffic for major programming languages. So Python, JavaScript, Java, C Sharp, PHP, and C++. And it's you see the graph, and almost all of those major languages on either flat or slightly downward trending, whereas Python is like hockey stick. And then the projection has it just blowing away from all these. It's, it's really incredible. The other one has to do with uh, Python compared to smaller growing technologies. So things like Rust and Go. And you know, there's so much uh, hype around Go and how this is like going to change the world and everyone should be there. If you compare the amount of uh, interest in Python versus the interest in Go, it's like 20 to 1. It's incredible. And then not just that, but the, the rate of the graph of interest in Python is actually growing faster than in Go or Rust or any of these things. So I feel like people probably hear, oh, you should switch to Go. You should go write that in Rust. You should use R or, or whatever, right? But in reality, these are not the same thing. I don't think things switch too quickly either. The, one of the things that came up, I think it was in this article, is the, um, the growth in high-income countries in Python is faster than a lot of other countries. The non-high-income countries, um, I don't even know what that means, but tend to follow by a year or two. So 
we should see even more growth worldwide in Python in the upcoming years, I think. I think it's awesome. You know, on one hand, I feel like people probably say, oh, well, but programming is not a popularity contest, right? Like, so what if it's more people use this versus that, right? A lot of people use PHP and PHP is crappy. Well, on one hand, PHP has a downward, <laughs> <laughs> has a downward graph, right? So one of my rules of thumb is when you look at the trajectory of a technology that you want to bet your career on, that graph should have a positive derivative. It should be pointing upwards, preferably increasingly so. A second derivative is being positive, also good. But you should not necessarily bet your career on downward graphs. And also, if you think about like what hangups people have when they start Python, it's not things like, like C, you got to come up with memory management and all that stuff that's really hard to deal with. There's a lot of hard to deal with stuff in, in C++. And I, I spend a lot of my time in C++, so I kind of love it too. But the big hang-up for Python is just the spaces thing. And that's easy to get over. And then you're on to making great things. Yeah, you're definitely on to making great things. You know, As soon as you pip install like a couple amazing things, you're like, oh, wait, spaces, they're cool. I can deal with this. And then after a week, you're like, wait... Why do I have to put curly braces? What are all these symbols? Like, this is so annoying. Yeah. Yeah, pretty funny, pretty funny. So I think this is definitely interesting. People out there thinking about where they should focus for their career, definitely have a look at this article and draw your own conclusions. But I think I think it's really a generally positive thing for everybody involved in Python in a lot of different ways. Yeah, especially us. Yes, especially us. People, <laughs> people love to listen to us talk about Python news. Awesome. So... One of the things I feel like has been the trend really since the internet, before the web, since the internet came out, early William Gibson days has been like this real fascination with technology. Technology is, it's almost assumed that it's going to make lives better. We can connect more and look, if we connect on Facebook more, we can share our views and they might be different. And then we'll come to a greater understanding. There'll be less fighting and less disagreement <laughs> and whatnot. And that's actually seemed to play out for quite a while. But I'm starting to feel like there's a trend saying maybe not so much anymore. Yeah, I guess I'm not quite sure where you're going with this. <laughs> well, there's a couple of, of really interesting articles and uh, sort of trends coming out around how technology is not necessarily, by default, a positive thing for a human society, for society. Right. So there's a couple of articles. One is called Tech People Think They Aren't Are They're Good Guys. They aren't. That was in Wired, came out recently. There was one in the MIT Technology Review called The Dark Secret at the Heart of AI. And then the last one is The Real Threat of Artificial Intelligence on the New York Times. That's a pretty big turn from where we have been over the last 20 years. That's true. But I think in uh, new technologies and programming, people don't really understand what it is. And so they're often scared of the unknown. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I think, you know, the tech people, they think they're the good guys. They aren't. This article in, in Wired, they talked a lot about how people in Silicon Valley, they really focused on Silicon Valley, but also in tech in general, they need to be aware that they're losing this view where well, these startups and these these tech startups, they're good by default unless they prove otherwise, right? They kind of have to prove that they're, they're doing the right thing. And so, you know, we used to talk about how big data was going to do a lot of good things for people, also the dangers of it. But Netflix recently had some kind of social media post 
that was like, hey, we just noticed that there are 10 people that watched this, I don't know, some Christmas show or something. We just noticed there's these 10 people that watched the same Christmas show for 18 days in a row. How sad or something like that. I mean, like, that's crazy, right? Wow. There's a lot of like wondering like, okay, well, why would you watch the same show 18 days in a row? Maybe it's just on in like some store and they always want to show this Christmas show. Maybe you fell asleep 17 times. You just want to finish it. That time. You're like, this time I'm going to finish it. I'm getting a coffee. I'm going to watch it. I can't even remember what the show was, but it wasn't something amazing. I feel like there's this interesting trend of people being more skeptical. You know, we have Apple and the encryption war sort of thing going on with Congress and the FBI at the beginning of the year. There's a lot of stuff there. Being cautious is a good thing. Like uh, things, people adding things like uh, Google Home and Amazon's, whatever Amazon's <laughs> thing is called. <laughs> their echoes and various things. Yeah, like. into their house and uh, in other forms of presence in your life that didn't used to be there. We do kind of have to trust these companies to not do anything evil with all of that information. And yeah, maybe it's good to be a little skeptical and have some people checking out, making sure that there's nothing weird going on. That's for sure. I do feel like the default behavior or default assumption was, well, it's Google. They're probably be fine with my email or it's, it's Amazon. What are they going to do? You know, I'm just buying a book from them and so on. And it's kind of not so much that way. I have a, an Amazon dot, which is one of the uh, Alexa type things. And it's sitting here. I, I made it quiet so it wouldn't disrupt the podcast. And the way you do that is you press this mute button on it. Okay. But the color that it changes to when it's not listening is really interesting. It changes to a bright red ring. Like there's something wrong and dangerous about it when it's not listening. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you would think it would turn, I don't know, green or, or white or like everything's safe. Tell, you know, say your secrets, whatever you want, right? We're not listening. But no, it turns bright red when it's not listening. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, pretty. What does it look like when it is listening? It's normally dark, but then if it's listening to you, it gets like a blue ring that kind of whirls around. It's a pretty cool device. I really like it, but I only have it in my office, not, you know, the rest of the house. So there's two other uh, things around this that I also wanted to talk about. And those were, I, I guess they're the same subject, but from two perspectives. And that's sort of this artificial intelligence machine learning. And so let me set the stage for you. Like last year, there was this experimental vehicle just created by researchers at NVIDIA, the graphics people. And it was an autonomous car, but it wasn't like what Google or Tesla or GM is doing where there's some sort of conditional programming for it. They didn't provide it a single instruction on how to do what it did. Instead, what they did is they taught it how to drive by have it watch and observe what humans do to cars while humans drive. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. But then it leads, you know, like this type of thing is not just done with cars, although it's pretty illustrative with cars. It's also done with mortgages, with cancer diagnoses, and various other things, uh, police activity. And so if this car crashes in unexpected ways, if it's going down the street and then it just swerves over and crashes into a tree, how do you know why it did that? You can't ask it. It's just, well, it learned pretty well and most of the time it drives right, then sometimes it doesn't. And so there's some really interesting ramifications of like living with machines that are integral to our lives that can't be separated from human society once we depend upon it. Like 
at one point we didn't need the internet, but imagine if you took it away now, right? The economies would crumble. So there's actually a proposal for a law in the EU saying that you need the ability to have the computer tell you why it made a decision about you, right? So if you are denied for a mortgage, a mortgage loan, why, right? Things like yeah. that. And so these full-on deep learning AIs that just learn through observation, they can't tell you why they did a thing, right? They're not like looking at themselves, knowing why. Possibly not, but I think that systems can be made such that they are interrogatable. Yeah, I hope so. But I think it's a really interesting trend that we're seeing more and more of this AI stuff appear, you know, up and down our interactions where we know less and less about it. And a couple of interesting things about that is um, now I, I don't have the reference for it, but there was some talk about how soon should we have uh, driverless cars on the streets? And uh, one view is that we should make sure that they're very, very safe. And another view is that they're, they just need to be safer than people. Yes. If you lower the death rate, even if there still is a non-zero death rate, it's still better than what we have now. And that's interesting. I think that's a super interesting trade-off. And from a high-level ethics perspective, I think you say as soon as it is safer than human drivers, if by deploying this technology, we save lives, it seems like the right thing to do. But, you know, if one of the behaviors of that life-saving AI is, well, there was an oncoming car, so I swerved and, and drove off a cliff <laughs> to avoid hitting it and killed my own driver instead of I saw there were five people in the oncoming car, for example. So I saved four lives, right? Or maybe even more by driving this one person off. The news coverage and the like the human shock of being like in control or, you know, subject to one of these types of systems, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. But I still, from an ethics perspective, I think as soon as it's ready to be safer. But I remember a lot of these questions like the five versus one, these came up with, I remember these, these in, in philosophy in college, and I never really thought it would actually apply to technology right now. It's a really interesting point because neither did I. I remember like, well, if there's a burning building and there's a, a baby inside and there's these people over here and you could only save either the baby or the, the three older people, like which is the right, you know, these weird trade-offs, you're like, well, nobody's ever going to do that, right? Like nobody's going to make those conscious decisions to sit there and go, at best, it's like you made a split reaction in a, an emergency and you did what you did, right? But when you're building these systems, you're like encoding it, basically. Yeah, it's like, well, no, this isn't a rhetorical question. We really need to know which one should we pick. <laughs> That's going to take some uh, serious uh, adjustments, I think. Yeah. Since I don't know a lot about machine learning and stuff, when I had uh, Catherine Jarmel on Testing Code, I asked her this, is it even possible to build systems that are interrogatable? And her answer went over my head, of course, but um, she was confident that if those laws are in place, that it's going to be possible. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, you know, if you design for it, you can probably at least get some kind of, you probably can design for it, but, you know, we'll probably have to do that as an explicit requirement, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, otherwise you just make it work and you're happy, right? Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is I think will benefit otherwise too. The, the reasons why artificial intelligence system came up with a conclusion might surprise us and it might teach us more about how we can better make decisions even without the AI. When uh, Google beat the world champion in Go, the top Go players started to study the, the non-intuitive solutions 
that the AI was, you know, applying to to the game to beat this guy, and they started becoming better and learning new techniques. It's pretty interesting. And that'll hopefully happen in like uh, detecting problems in cat scans and things like that. Right, reliability in airplane motors, so they don't crash and stuff. Awesome. So I definitely think it's both a very positive and kind of. You know, we're going to go back to philosophy class as a yeah. society as well. Pretty interesting. This portion of Talk Python to Me has been brought to you by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh, relying on users to report errors, digging through log files, trying to debug issues, or getting millions of alerts just flooding your inbox and ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insight, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. Adding Rollbar to your Python app is as easy as pip install Rollbar. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. Are you considering self-hosting tools for security or compliance reasons? Then you should really check out Rollbar's compliant SaaS option. Get advanced security features and meet compliance without the hassle of self-hosting, including HIPAA, ISO 27001, Privacy Shield, and more. They'd love to give you a demo. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to talkpython.fm slash rollbar and check them out. So another big piece of news that we got was that Python is starting to appear inside of some major applications. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surprising ones, I would say, actually. They definitely surprised me. Yeah, we may have jumped the gun on the uh, Excel and Python, but hopefully that'll happen. Yeah, if, if we can encourage uh, Microsoft to, to do that. I think it's definitely one of the highest voted things, but it's, it's not a, a thing yet. So one thing, let's start with something that is out right now in 2017, and that is SQL Server, Microsoft's database server, which is ubiquitously installed inside these large corporations, right? It's like inside these large Microsoft Windows enterprises, like SQL Server is just the de facto database. And what's interesting is now Python 3.5 ships inside SQL Server so you can do in-process machine learning against your data. Oh, that's great. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so if you got 100 gigabytes of data in your database, instead of trying to suck that across the network or move it around, you just write a stored procedure that is in Python, and you you can use all the Anaconda libraries, you know, TensorFlow, all that kind of stuff, like in process, which is really going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, that's great. So that, that's a, that is a concrete thing that has happened. <laughs> a thing that may happen has got a lot of news in the last couple of weeks is excel i'm not sure who this came from but i think it was part of the what is it people vote on new features or something on user voice they have a like what new features do you want in excel and this is i think the most popular one and then they they sent out like kind of a survey to find out why people want it we pushed it on python bytes to try to get more people to answer this survey i personally don't care a whole lot about sql server or excel but especially with excel if Right. Currently, what you use to program Excel to automate it is this thing called VBA, which is like a crappy, it's even for Visual Basic, it's like a crappy cut down version of that, right? It's like a bad programming language. And so there's this a push to get Python to be the new macro programming language of Python, uh, of Excel inside Excel, which would be really awesome because within companies, like Excel is probably the biggest database in quotes that companies have. And so many people work inside of Excel and are sort of Excel experts. And if we could get all of those people somewhat interested in Python, that would be just positive across the board, I think. Yeah, definitely. 
be great. Yep. So everyone out there, go upvote this thing on user voice. We'll put the link in the show notes. It might increase the use of Excel, which might not be a good... Yeah, that's true. Maybe it would be negative. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep that down. Uh, so the last one for the year has to do with Google, right? Google implements Python on Go. Is that, yeah. is that so what we have here? That is what we have. So the, the people at YouTube created this thing called Grumpy, which I don't know about naming open source projects, but if you want people to like love it and to be attracted to it, calling it Grumpy might not be the best name. But it's instead of having Python implemented in C as it is in C Python, it's that underlying implementation written in Go with some of that. So Go's sort of claim to fame is like asynchronous from the scratch, like parallel from the very core of it. And so if you want to do the parallel async IO type stuff we were talking about, then having Go as the foundation makes that incredibly easy and powerful. Do you any idea what where this stage is? Is it is it still something that's going along? Are people contributing to it? That's a pretty interesting question. I'm not entirely sure what's going on with it. I actually think it's a great name. It's because people <laughs> grumpy about having to use Go can use Python instead. It's not super active. The last check-in was November 21st. So that's, and you know, that's about a month ago, right? But this also could just be, you know, how much is Google pushing this out? I think what this was, was really a research project for what would it look like if we implemented the foundations of Python instead of with C, we'll do it with Go. And the reason is this is from the YouTube team and they process, well, YouTube is running the front end parts on Python 2.7, I believe. And they're processing over a million requests per second. So they have, uh, let's say, unique parallel parallelism requirements. Yeah. Right? And so they're like, okay, well, what can we do if we wrote this in Go? And it, it's pretty interesting. But it's, like you sort of pointed out, it's, it's stalled out a little bit in the last four or five months. So I'm not sure if it's going to go somewhere, if it's like work being worked on internally and then they're going to release it or I don't know. Maybe somebody from YouTube can contact us and tell us what's going on. I did have uh, them on the podcast. So I had a guy named Dylan Trotter on the podcast who was uh, a major player in this at YouTube and talked about him, talked about it, but that was back on episode 95. So it's, the news is not super fresh. One of the things you, um, you brought up here in the notes is that we often think about Python as just C Python, but like this grumpy is another version it's running on Go, but there's a whole bunch of others that. <laughs> there's a crazy bunch of others for people who don't know. Yeah. So you have another article called how big is the Python family? Yeah. This is from the Czech IO guys who have like the gamification of Python learning. And they wrote this article called How Big is the Python Family? And so we already have CPython, Jython, IronPython for one variation of Python on .NET. Then there's Python4.NET, there's Cython, there's PyPy, and there's MicroPython. And now we have Grumpy. And there's also some others with Java that I can't remember the name of, but it wasn't in the article. I think that's cool that people are tackling it for different things. I'm really excited to see MicroPython keep growing. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about MicroPython. So those of you who don't know, MicroPython runs on microcontrollers, so like $5 chips. And basically your Python program is the running operating system on there. And you can just do whatever you want. You can do insane things like you can actually take a Lambda expression and hook it directly to a hardware interrupt on the microcontroller. Yeah, that's just awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's such a cool little project. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nice. All right. Well, that's our year in review. I know we missed a bunch of things. And if you feel like something's important, go to talkpython.fm slash 145 and put an entry in the show notes. But before we kind of round out what we want to talk about, there's a couple of honorable mentions left there, Brian. I think it was notable that you, both the podcast Python Bytes and Talk Python, hit every week of the year in 2017, which is pretty awesome. Thank you. That Yeah, that's actually quite awesome. And, you know, thanks for your help with that, because I went and like tooled around Europe and the Middle East for like four weeks and you and some other folks kept it rolling. So awesome. Oh, that's right. We had some guest hosts. That was fun. That's right. And uh, Testing Code had seven episodes. I'm going to try to get an eighth out before the end of the year. That's uh, not as impressive, but uh, still going. No, but you did 52 weeks of Python Bytes as well. And that was awesome. Those were very fun. And the ones that you did have on testing code were really good. The chaos monkey and some of the other ones really, really nice. All right. Thanks. I'm um, one of the most, like the most recent one uh, with uh, testing in, in machine learning and, and uh, data science with Catherine was really popular, yeah. which is great. That's cool. Yeah. She does a great job. The other thing we didn't bring them up cause they weren't huge stories to talk about, but um, I think there's a trend to more, more and more people embracing virtual environments with things like uh, pipenv coming along. And uh, I think that's a good thing. People should be using more of those. So, yay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have pipenv, we got talks, and there's some other ones as well. I think a fade was one that would do interesting. Th- there's a lot, of, a lot of libraries that are really trying to make virtual environments just seamless. It's really nice. I've been using PyCharm a lot, and it, it has picked up the, its game with using local virtual environments too. And that's, that's a good thing. I love that. A create a new project. It says, all right, new virtual environment and a well-known folder within this project. Unless you want to say otherwise, this is what we're doing. I really think that's the right move. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. Another big thing, which you hinted at at the beginning is you shipped your book, which was a quite the, the long labor of work, but you have your Python testing with PyTest out and that's been going strong, right? It's been phenomenal. And people have been sending me pictures on Twitter of them them and their book uh, all over the world. I've got one, a picture from uh, France and one in uh, all over, uh, a couple in Africa. It's pretty cool to see all over the world. It's great. Yeah, it's it's been great to sort of sit on the sidelines and watch the reception of your book. So it's on Pragmatic. Uh, you can get it there in paperback or digital, and you can also get it on Amazon, right? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Okay, so uh, it's time to ask you the two questions that are always at the end of the show. All right. All right, so what is your, uh, if you're going to write some Python code, let's say that way, what editor do you open up? Now it's PyCharm. When you interviewed me a couple years ago, it was uh, Sublime, but I have fully switched to PyCharm. Interesting. I mean, that's my favorite as well. Everyone knows I go on and on about it, but tell me why, like what was the motivation? The integration with PyTest, of course, is pretty darn good. And they're, they're working with me to try to get it even more integrated, which I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the development team to be responsive to some of my requests. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. They are very responsive. The other thing is um, I write a lot of Markdown and the Markdown plugins make writing Markdown in PyCharm just very, very nice. So it's got a side-by-side uh, viewer, and it's cool. I like it. Yeah, nice. All right, and notable PyPI package? Well, PyTest. Awesome. But I want to add that when I'm using PyTest, I'm, lately I'm always adding the PyTest HTML plugin from Mozilla to make reports. It's pretty cool. Okay, nice. So you get better like HTML-friendly, pretty 
output, not just text logs. And it pops up like some JavaScript uh, uh, widgets so that you can filter filter and sort and all sorts of great things. Yeah, we started the show talking about, with our first item, talking about the Python 3 and the type annotation stuff with PyAnnotate, MyPy, monkey types and all that. PyTest has some PyAnnotate integrations as well, right? Oh, right. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I can't remember. Was that PyAnnotate-PyTest or PyTest-PyAnnotate or PyTest? test annotate i don't know i could put the link in the show notes but yeah it's pretty cool all right all right all right well i think it's been quite the year in the python space for 2017 so any final thoughts on what you've observed i just wanted to like thank everybody for their support of both this podcast and all the python podcasts out there and uh i want to mention to people that um if you like this sort of uh banter of a couple of people talking about what's going on in the python world you should also check out Python Bytes if you haven't already. I also want to say thanks. That's, that's a great point. People out there who listen and give us feedback and really enjoy what we're doing, that's that's why we can do this, right? So thank you, everyone. And definitely visit pythonbytes.fm and subscribe over there because we do this this kind of stuff more or less weekly, but in shorter form over on, on Python Bytes. The number of people that showed up to say hi to us at PyCon, we had a booth there. That was an incredible turnout. A lot of people... A lot of listeners coming up and talking with us. It was great. Yeah, that was really, really awesome. And we're going to do it this year, right, in Cleveland? Yeah, definitely. Brian and I have a booth lined up uh, along with some other folks. And so be sure to stop by in 2018. And get your PyCon ticket because it's going to sell out very soon. Definitely. I got mine. I got mine as well. All right, Brian, thank you so much for uh, getting together and sharing this look back at 2017 with me. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Brian Aachen, and this episode has been brought to you by Linode and Rollbar. Linode is bulletproof hosting for whatever you're building with Python. Get your four months free at talkpython.fm slash Linode. Just use the code Python17. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed until your users complain, of course. As Talk Python to Me listeners, track a ridiculous number of errors for free at rollbar.com slash talkpython to me. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. (laughs) 